Alright. For a cup of tea. Ah, yes. I'm a sucker for the good earth, sweet, and spicy. This is Brock with the Sprocket Podcast. I am here in my house where I just met the plumber, and the plumber just cleared our uh, backed-up drain. Here, here's a tip for you, folks. If you've got a drain, uh, that Drano stuff, in, in addition to it being like all chemically and whatnot, it's also just ineffective. It doesn't work. So, um, I also tried snaking it myself with an auger. That went about as well as you'd expect. Uh, you know, I, I got it back there. It's the second time I've tried, but so it goes. Anyways, this was a block that required a plumber to help us, and finally, after the plumber came by, we made it work. So, anyways, I'm going to open up my uh, tea bag here. drop that into the cup and pour some hot water over it. This is Brock from the Sprocket Podcast. It is a pleasure to talk to you again. Hope you had a fantastic New Year celebration. Uh, in the old year, I was over in Boston for the Christmas holiday, visiting my in-laws and also visiting some people in the town there. And I had the pleasure to meet up with Peter Firth. Dr. Peter Firth is a friend of our friend Peter Kuntz here in Portland who does traffic engineering. Let me read you the bio from the Northeastern University website. Peter Firth is a professor of civil engineering at Northeastern University. He earned his BS, MS, and PhD degrees at MIT, finishing in 1981. His transit research covers routing and scheduling, data collection, ridership, estimation, and modeling, and transit signal priority. He has been a consultant to more than 25 transit agencies nationwide. Peter also does research in traffic signal control and in bikeway design. In the summers, he teaches a course in the Netherlands on design for sustainable urban transportation, exposing American students to Dutch best practices in transit and bike-oriented urban planning, bikeway design, transit priority, and transit safety. Peter was a pleasure to meet. Uh, we met in his office there at the Northeastern Campus, and I arrived uh, I arrived on Brompton Bicycle because our good friend Carl Larson, who lives in the Boston area now, lent me his Brompton for the day. I rode that thing through, uh, well, I rode it through the cold, and then I rode it through the snow, and then eventually I rode it through the slush. So thank you, Carl, again, for hooking me up with that transportation. Uh, but now, here's the conversation with Peter Firth. So I am here with, it is Doctor, right? Yes. It says Professor on the nameplate, so I wasn't sure. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Firth, would you introduce yourself for the tape? Tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, yeah, I'm Peter Firth. I'm a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Northeastern University. My field is transportation engineering, and within that field, I do a lot of work with traffic signals, with bus transportation, and with bicycle transportation. Yeah, and uh, we were recommended to you by my friend Peter Kuntz, who does a very similar thing to you works for the city of portland and controls their traffic signals and, and whatnot there so he's the best he's all right yeah um so let's let's talk first of all just you you said this isn't as interesting as other other things but uh can you tell us a little bit about inventing the smart traffic signal yeah i i, I invented a system called self-organizing traffic signals uh, intelligence in our traffic signals is something we've had for 40 or more years. We have detectors that can detect when uh, is, is a vehicle on top of me or not. And if a, a time period goes by, we call it a gap, of, could, you could program it to be two or three seconds, then you could say, oh, well, the traffic is gone, it's time to give up control uh, for this one street and give it to another. We've been doing that for, for a long time. 
and you've, you've seen maybe some traffic signals that are really snappy, really quick. Left turn lanes are the easiest place to see it. As soon as the traffic is gone, boom, it switches. But at other places, you'll see the traffic is all gone and the light just stays green. And even though there's nobody there. And, and this is not good for, for several reasons. One, if you're a pedestrian trying to cross the street, why should you have to wait when there's no traffic? Number two, when a road is empty like that, yet the light is green, when a car finally does come, ooh, that combination of a light that's green, and you know it's going to be changing any moment, but the road ahead is empty. It just invites people to speed. Mm-hmm. Now we've got speeding drivers together with pedestrians who want to cross the street. Not a good mix. Right. So um, I came up with a system called self-organizing traffic signals. Because the reason we have those long delays that, that you see out there is because there's a traditional way of organizing or synchronizing traffic signals, which is to force them to all follow a clock. Okay. There's a common cycle. Often it's 100, 120 seconds, and every signal switches at that same when that same cycle is up. Let's say it's 100 seconds, and there are fixed offsets. So let's say one signal, it's green starts at a certain time. The next one starts 10 seconds later. The next one starts 15 seconds after that. It's easy to see how with that you can get a beautiful green wave. But that beautiful green wave only works on one-way streets. Okay. In principle, it could work (laughs) on two-way streets if the intersection spacing is perfect and regular. But it never is. So we actually end up with uh, traffic engineers are following this nirvana dream of beautifully synchronized intersections, but they don't get that dream unless Mm. they've got a one-way grid. So we end up with... Yeah, the problems I was describing before. Self-organizing traffic signals takes away the clock. Every intersection uh, uses those detectors I was talking about. If they find a gap, your turn is over. We go to the next guy. That way we cycle around quickly. Mm -hmm. Nobody waits longer than they have to. It's good for pedestrians. It's better for buses because buses can't stay in a green wave. But there's one drawback everybody's always known to just smart but independent signals, which is they can't coordinate. You know, so somebody driving down a main road might have to stop so so often. It's frustrating, and that adds a lot of delay. So what I invented is a way, uh, a new rule to add, some new detection and new rules, so that even though the intersections operate independently, they get information from their upstream neighbor, and based on that, they can hold their green light to, uh, to, to let a, a, a bunch of cars, if they're about to arrive, I'll hold my light green and let them pass through. Yeah. So it becomes like a dance. Mm-hmm. Every intersection is just dancing on its own, cycling around. But if two intersections nearby say, hey, let's dance together for the next couple minutes, they can dance together, two, three, four, as many as they want. But when one intersection starts to say, wait a second, I need to stay green a long time, the other ones aren't obligated to follow. They can say, well, my traffic is all gone. I'm not, there's other people waiting on other streets. I'm going to switch. So it's decentralized, intelligent, based on uh, peer-to-peer communication. We've only been able to test it so far in simulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those tests, it does great. Uh, we're able to um, 
with transit priority, we're able to get transit delay down to less than five seconds per intersection with no increase in delay to cars. Or if you don't want it, if you don't have transit to worry about, you could just reduce the delay for cars by 15, 20 percent uh, because it's so much more efficient. Yeah, and efficiency is super popular for anybody using a road system because no one really likes waiting, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Of course, of course. And it's, and it, and it's safer, too, because mm-hmm. the, our traditional way of coordinating lights, which holds them green, even when there's no traffic there, that's inherently unsafe because it promotes speeding. Sure. This system... Like someone's trying to make it there before it turns red. Yeah. In, in this system, the default mode is when your traffic is gone your light turns yellow and then red and we give a turn to the next to the mm-hmm. next street. Yeah. I'm curious about have you thought much about distracted driving? I know that many places the state of Oregon where I'm from just introduced a new distracted driving law making it a bit more illegal than it was before to be distracted by an electronic device or something while you're driving a car. Um, do you think red lights encourage distraction in any way? Uh, it's not something that I, I think about a lot. When, okay. when on, a, on a busy urban street with a lot of intersections, that's, drivers do tend to pay more attention. The, to the, the, the really terrible distracted driving crashes that we, we find are more, uh, more likely to happen on the open road. Um, uh, people don't fall asleep at the wheel right. when, when they're in an urban situation with traffic light after traffic light. So... Um, I I don't think that's as as big a thing. And you know, we get irritated by the person who who looks at the phone while the light is red. But they're not crashing in. They're, they might be delaying you, but they're not right. crashing into anybody. So right, a delay is not inherently unsafe. That's uh, <laughs> it's not as it's not as bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the stress uh, stress and bicyclists and people you know road systems at large. Yeah, you've yeah. done a lot of work in this, so yeah. do you want to describe what it is you've what it is you've looked at and, and yeah. What you've well, come if up you with? if you're if you're in a city that has bike lanes, you've probably noticed that some of those bike lanes are really pleasant to ride in. It's your it's a defensible space. Car, you know, there's a space, there's a line, and cars really never cross that line, almost never, and you can ride there and you feel quite comfortable. And yet then there are other bike lanes that probably a lot of your friends and relatives will say, I would never ride my bike there because it's they're, they're, you, get, you get doored so easily. Uh, one of my students did a study of bike lanes in commercial areas, three commercial areas here in Boston. He just set up his camera to watch what happened. What he found was that 45% of the bicyclists had to leave the bike lane because somebody was double parked, was loading, taxis, buses. You know, if I tell you, oh, you'll be safe, I've got a bike lane for you to use. Well, there's a 50% chance it might be open. 50% chance you've got to go out into traffic. So what what we had been doing here in America, our focus was on we've got a complete some bike facilities. So, oh yeah, a bike lane, that would be great. But actually what people are looking for is a place to ride where there's very little traffic stress. You can have that on a street without any bike, anything. Mm -hmm. Just a quiet local street. 
if cars are going slow, there's not much traffic, that's low stress. So, and some of our bike lanes are low stress, some are high stress. You know, a friend of mine would say, oh, I could tell how stressful or dangerous a street is just from a photograph. It's just easy to tell, you know, like what people say about pornography. It's hard to describe, but I, I know it when I see it. Exactly. Well, we needed a way to, we needed a way to be, it had to be a little more um, objective than that. So I came up with a method of essentially grading streets by what level of traffic stress do they impose on bicyclists. And it's based on, you know, does this, how many lanes does the street have? Is it an unlaned street, like most of our local streets are? And if it's unlaned and has low traffic, that's usually very low stress. If it's a laned street, then it becomes pretty high stress unless there's either very low traffic or there are bike lanes. If there are bike lanes, whether it's high stress or low stress depends on are you next to parking? And how often is that bike lane being blocked? by you know, double parking and so on, the kind of thing that happens a lot in commercial areas. And then, of course, if you're separated from bikes, that's really low stress. And see, I had this thought experiment that I was just so excited to do. I said to myself, if I could just color all the streets in a city, uh, color code them, one color for low stress and one color for high stress, and then make all the high stress stuff disappear, what you're left with that's all the places where people are comfortable riding a bike. I bet you what you'd end up with is something so disconnected. That would demonstrate that, yeah, you just can't get from here to there. Mm-hmm. So we first did it for uh, one city, the city of San Jose, and sure enough, we found all these islands. You could, some, some little, you know, some just basically you could ride around the block and you couldn't get any further than that without having to go on a high-stress link. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it would be an area, you know, half a mile by half a mile, but you just couldn't leave that area without riding on a high-stress street. There was no low-stress connection, for example, from San, between San Jose State University and San Jose City College. No, you know, no, if you looked at neighborhoods, where could I live and have a low-stress bike ride to my work in, let's say, at San Jose City College? Oh, there's t- hardly any place mm-hmm. because high-stress barriers all over the city. Since then, we've applied that to, oh, f- five or six different cities and uh, all over the country now. That's become the, the most desired method that cities are using to evaluate their bike networks. Yeah. Instead of saying, where do we have bike lanes, they're saying, where do we have a low-stress route? Some bike lanes, as I was saying, are kind of high stress. Mm -hmm. Some are low stress. And uh, that's become the the goal of bike programs all over the country. We want to give our our citizens low stress bike routes that connect them from their homes to their destinations. Yeah. Uh, What's your personal experience with stress on the roadway? Like, what does that look like for you? Oh, see... The biggest chain, the biggest difference is between me and my family. I just love bicycling. It seemed to me so efficient. I just could never, could never wrap my, my head around the idea of using a 2,000-pound monster called a car to move my, you know, 160-pound body around. That seems so efficient. 
I like being outdoors. I like exercise. So I was always riding a bike. And for years, I was alone. I mean, there was nobody else riding on the roads I was on. And I just would shrug. And when I'd think about why aren't other people riding, I'd say, I don't know. They need to just get used to the traffic. Then I spent a year living in Holland. Mm -hmm. What an opportunity that was. And over there, I saw, wow, it doesn't have to be this way. They have separate bike paths going everywhere. You get exposed to a brand new way of doing things. Oh, it was, uh, that's when I discovered such a thing as low-stress bicycling. You know, it took me a a month to (laughs) de-stress. For the first month, I was riding my bike fast like I did in Boston. You see, in Boston... When you're on a street with heavy traffic, you ride as fast as you can because, number one, that gets you the hell out of that dangerous environment faster. Yeah. And number two, there's a less less differential between your speed and, the, and, and other cars, so there's fewer people, fewer cars passing you per minute that might, you know, knock you over. I got to Holland. It took me a month before I realized... I don't have to race like this. Yeah. It's just safe. It's pleasant. I can slow down, smell the flowers, enjoy the view. And, oh, I, I came back to America, a different bike rider. My my ride to work, which before I, I did it about 35 minutes, now I was slowing down, enjoying it at a nice, cool 42 minutes. A lot less sweat that way, too, yeah. by, by the way, too. But the big difference was that... My my wife and my kids, who didn't feel comfortable at all riding in our environment except to me in the immediate neighborhood, they were riding everywhere. Uh-huh. My wife did the grocery shopping for a family of six on her bike. Front basket, rear panniers, bags hanging off yeah. the handlebars. But you had a safe bike route to get to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. When I came back to America... I I, uh, I got involved in my local town bike committee, and I, I got involved on, in, in national uh, bike advocacy organizations, and I found out that there was this incredible barrier and bias against Dutch separated bike paths to America. Mm-hmm. Somebody had, had had sold people the lie that separated bike paths are more dangerous. And that uh, traffic engineering manuals told the engineering designers, no, 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 no. You might think that a sidewalk level bike path or a separated bike path is a good idea, but it's not. Don't do it. So I was part of a, a, a movement. Peter Kuntz is a proud member of that movement, too, to uh, just uh, un- uncover those lies to to bring out the truth i I helped lead a study to show that no separated bike paths are statistically measurably safer than riding in the road what kind of everybody kind of knows that but Mm -hmm. we had to we had to prove it to, to 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 chase that nonsense out of our manuals and and rewrite our manuals uh and 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 get the advocacy organizations refocused to give people what they really want, which is low traffic stress places to ride a bike. Bicycling, yeah. part of the appeal is that it's it's fun, it's pleasurable. And you lose all that when you're when you're uh, worried about oh who's going to cut me off and oh I better I better move a few inches further away from the door so I don't get doored but then I better not move more than a few inches or I'm going to get sideswiped by this car that's coming by 
uh, you know, and putting your butt out there and saying, car drivers, I'm a, I'm a vehicle equal to you, you know, uh, stop for me. Because that's another popular opinion in some places, right, is that, like, I have a right to the road, so I'm going to be out there. But that's an inherently high-stress position for just about everybody. There are a few people who like doing that, and, hey, you know, there are all kinds of extreme sports. There are people who like racing <laughs> racing down uh, hills on their skis between trees and and, uh, and and seeing if they can come out come out of it with their life. And, you know, if you want to do that, fine. Commuting can be an extreme sport. <laughs> Oh yeah, if you want to do that, fine. But mm-hmm. but the this the, the the people who peddled this this concept of uh, that that separated bike routes are unsafe. This this philosophy was called vehicular cycling. They didn't just encourage people to ride in the street. They fought against allowing separate bike paths. Yeah, like you were saying, the manuals shaped the policy on the ground and how things work out in the real world. Yeah, so, you know, I don't have any trouble with somebody who says, well, I prefer riding on the road to riding on your bike path. Like, hey, it's free country. <laughs> Do what you want. Yeah. yeah. But the idea that, and, and, and there are pe- still people who voice this idea, people in, in positions of authority, uh, the idea that we should not build separate bike paths because then the people who still want to ride on the road might get honked at a little bit. Hey, uh, you know, you can have you can have your right to riding on the road, but don't deny the right to the 97% of Americans who want to be separate. Um, don't deny them the chance to have that. Yeah, well, it sounds like what you were describing with the experiment of, of kind of labeling roads on a map and, yeah, and yeah. just erasing the ones that are too high stress, like that's in in practice what a lot of people do when they consider bicycling, right? Because um, stress and like not just actual danger but perceived danger uh, will keep people from doing stuff, it seems. Absolutely. So one of our my studies in Boston, I asked... From a typical home, what percentage of jobs could you get to using only low-stress links? And the answer was 2%. 2%. From some neighborhoods along a, along a, nice, along a bike path, 10 goes up to maybe 12%. In many neighborhoods, it's less than half a percent, and for the city as a whole, only 2%. And so that's why... Bicycling is simply not considered a realistic commuting option. Yeah. When people think about how am I going to get to work, you know, there are a few people who just are bike lovers, like mm-hmm. I am, and will find a way. But for the majority of the, let's say, sensible population, <laughs> it's not even an option you'd think of. Right. Now, we've created a network plan saying, you know, if you make this link and this link and you finish this path and put cycle tracks on this road and and add this footbridge we could have a network where 70% 80% of the jobs in the city Mm -hmm. you can reach using only low stress bike routes that is revolutionary that's a whole new mode of transportation that you've opened up to people not by creating a new vehicle no the vehicle bicycle has been around but a bicycle if the only path you you have to use is something that you have to share with cars that could kill you well that's just not something most people want to do this is the 
this, this, this idea that I'm proposing, you could easily think, well, this is crazy. I mean, uh, and who knows what it would ever be like, except you could go over to the Netherlands. You could go to, to Copenhagen and, and a few other cities in Denmark, you, and you could see what it's like today. But it needs to take at least a month for you to uh, de-stress yourself enough to relax <laughs> and enjoy it. You know, I have the good pleasure of being able to take 25 students or so to Holland every summer. Mm-hmm. I take a class of students for it, study a course in sustainable transportation. I actually own a fleet of bikes. They get off the plane, I put them on bikes, and they live on those bikes for five weeks. They are um, they use the bikes to commute to class. We use the bikes for field trips. They use the bikes in the evening when they're going for their shopping, to go out for the evening, wherever they're going. They're living on a bike for those mm-hmm. five weeks. And they just see the complete uh, freedom that you have to get everywhere, uh, and, and, and you never have to face a, a dangerous situation with traffic. This is something that is so far from what it's like in most American cities. But the good news is it's something that we can change. Right. Changing people's attitudes, that's difficult. Mm-hmm. But changing streets, heck, we own the streets. Right. We the public. We design the streets. We the engineers. So we actually could do that as a gift to our citizens. You know, uh, I've, I've estimated for, for, for my city, and some other cities have come up with the same thing, that over a, a period of only about 20 years, at a cost of about $10 to $20 per person per year. That would give us the funds we need to transform our streets to have safe bike routes going everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned skiing before. Yeah, hurtling uh, downhill. I ask, I ask some of my students, so how much does it cost these days when you, when you get a lift ticket? And, you know, the answer I hear is often like 80 bucks. And that gives you the freedom to ride on all the beautiful trails in a mountain for a day. Mm-hmm. And then I'm talking about building a safe bike network for $10 per year. So I say to people, I want to sell you a ticket for only $10. And you can use it for a whole year to ride on all the safe bike paths around the city. What a bargain. Yeah. And... Uh, so I'm really glad to see when I, I get really encouraged when I see there are some leading cities in North America that are pushing ahead with that. I mean, the ones that blow me away the most are Vancouver and Montreal and mm-hmm. Canada. Uh, for a long time, Seattle was a sleeper, just kind of watching what Portland is doing. And now Seattle is going uh, just gung-ho in San Francisco. Uh, we can see great progress in, in Washington. Portland has always been a, a good leader. Uh, but we still need to see uh, it, it, it still hasn't taken hold on the majority of American cities. And uh, it's just such a public, uh, public benefit winner all around. It's good for health. It's good for youth. Uh, kids, imagine kids getting to school by bike. You know, I went to school by bike. Mm-hmm. Peter Coons went to school by bike. It's not such an unfamiliar concept for uh, generations who've been around for a yeah. while. But, but a younger generation is not getting as many of those opportunities, it seems. 
You know, in 1960, 50% of kids in America got to school walking or on foot. Mm-hmm. If there had been a public policy objective back then, we've got to stop this. Oh, this is terrible. We've got to stop kids from being able to walk and bike to school. You could say that the last 50 years has been a smashing success. That's about what would have happened if that were the case. Yeah, because now it's only like 10%. Mm-hmm. And, oh, we got, you know, our kids are, are, they're not getting the exercise they need. They're not alert when they get to school. They got all this energy that they're not getting out. Uh, in Holland, how do kids get to high school? By bike. That is it. They don't have school buses. You mm-hmm. are all expected to ride a bike to school. And when they do surveys of where are the happiest people, which country, where are the happiest children in, in on earth, it's always Netherlands and Denmark coming yeah. up number one That's and what number I hear. two. Uh, so, if, you know, for the sake of our kids, uh, when, when I lived in Holland, our four kids were ages four to 14. And I'm telling you, that city was a playground. Mm-hmm. Not just they have a lot of playgrounds, but the city was a playground because you've got bike paths going everywhere. One morning, my 14-year-old boy says to me, Dad, or one evening, Dad, uh, if you don't see me at breakfast tomorrow, don't worry. I was looking at a map, and I saw this cool bike path that I haven't been on before down near Rotterdam. I'm going to be getting up at 3 in the morning to go check it out. Don't worry. (laughs) I'll be back in time for school when it starts at 8.30. Right. You know, it's uh, my 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 little boy was tugging my pants leg every day. Daddy, can I go ride a bike? Daddy, can I go ride a bike? Uh, it's a, a gift that we can give to our to our children. Uh, it's it's it, it's revo- it's revolutionary. Yeah. One of the lessons I, I I try to get across to people is that bicycling is cheap, but it's not free mm-hmm. compared to building a freeway. Oh. Building bike paths is so cheap. So-called compared freeways. compared to uh, a, a new transit line. Oh, you know, and in, in here in Boston, we've just worked hard to get the cost on a five-station transit line extension down from three billion to two billion. They're going to spend two billion dollars to extend a transit line, one line, for like three or four miles. Mm-hmm. We could build a 200-mile bicycling network for less than half of that. Less than half. Yeah. So bicycling is cheap, but it's not free. Mm-hmm. What our city budgets for bicycling is a dollar fifty per person. Okay. It's nothing. It's diddly squat. With that, all you can do is 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 some paint and some lines. And that's what. And you that's get. not going to get us the low stress bike route we need you know to get go from a dollar fifty per person up to ten dollars per person that's like asking for pocket change from the huge amounts that we spend on highways right and, and for on, most people it's not going to be that much of a change to their budget no no but it's it's a new way of doing things mm-hmm. and uh this is something that that uh we should be attacking at the local level at the state level uh, and at the federal level, I'm curious as far as as far as like you're you're a teacher. You teach mm-hmm. people um, about what they do when they're designing structures that people use. 
if someone is not in traffic engineering, mm -hmm. what would you recommend that they do to see the bicycling world they'd like to see? Oh, well, of course, most people aren't in traffic engineering, but there, I've always, I've always said there are three hurdles that we have to overcome in America. This is af after being in Holland to get to have that wonderful bicycling. One is we got to win the battle with the traffic engineers. That battle is mostly won. <laughs> The, uh, the, the new engineering manuals favor, favor uh, separated bike paths and, 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 and that uh, irrational opposition, it's gone. Mm -hmm. A second thing is we have to win over the people. We have to win over the public. And that one is going really well also. Uh, everywhere, people say, oh, what we want is separated bike paths. People don't want, you know, the old, old style you know, bike lane between flying traffic or you know they they want separated bike paths and 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 uh, the, but the third thing that we have to overcome is budget we've got to uh, have our, our cities have to fund uh, the bicycling program and mm -hmm. most cities uh, they find it hard to, to raise their revenues so it means shifting things reallocating from this to that and Hey, every dollar is spoken for. There's none available, and so what we'll see, what we're seeing is uh, a lot of talk by our politicians, but not many are putting their money where the mouth is. So that's the battle that we have to we have to do now. We we didn't get an interstate highway system by just talking about it. We funded it. Mm -hmm. We don't get to build transit lines by just talking about it. Um, we funded it. And what bicycling needs is not a little path here or a little improvement there. We need a network, a network of low-stress bike routes that connect everywhere to everywhere. And that, a network plan like that uh, needs uh, real funding. So that people should vote with their dollars. So vote with vote your dollars. Their dollars to go places. Uh, yeah, uh, advocate for, 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 bike, for, for, for bike, the bike program. Uh, Advoc yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for what you do. It's uh, it's fascinating what you've shared. Uh, where can people find your work? So I have a website, uh, www.northeastern.edu/peter.firth, and on that website, uh, you can find a page about my research. It'll talk about those self-organizing traffic signals. There's a page about local projects. Uh, my students, you know, they all have to work on projects for their education. Well, I have them work on real projects. Mm -hmm. And you can see uh, projects where they've shown that, hey, this four-lane road doesn't need four lanes to carry its traffic. They've done all the traffic engineering, all the intersection analysis, and shown that that road can be given a road diet, shrink it down to two lanes per direction. Now we can add protected bike lanes and safer crossings for pedestrians. Um, so yeah, you can find find out about me there. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, I forget what my name is, but it's something real. We'll it's, find it's, it. It's Peter Firth. It's <laughs> basically yeah. I'm not trying to hide who I am. There we go. Yeah, you look on Twitter for Peter Firth, you'll find me. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for talking with us. Glad to. At the end of our conversation, uh, Peter did mention one more thing that I really wanted to get on tape about his son in the Netherlands. There we go. We're good. We're good. Okay. Uh, you mentioned your son says I'm going to go out and, and ride like 60 miles away or 30 miles away or something. And yeah. So bicycling in the countryside in Holland, oh man, it's fantastic. So yeah. what happened was 
Uh, at first, people said, here's a great route, and then they got a network of a couple routes, and then there be other, other great routes, and there are other great routes, and finally somebody came up with the idea, we should have a system in which you get to invent your own route. Mm-hmm. So they've, there, there's a, a map, there's just this network, it's just a web, a web of uh, one, beautiful bike paths and quiet country roads, and wherever two meet, that's a node, and the nodes are all numbered. Okay. So then you just can look at a map and say, hmm, today what I'd like to do is I'm going to start at 75, then go to 74, then go to 27, 26, 23, 22. And then you just write those nodes down. Uh, one of the best places to write them is on, on your hand in that sort there of fleshy go. space between sure. your thumb and your first finger. So you don't need cue sheets. No, or uh, if, for the, if you do this regularly... Uh, there's a, a little device that you can mount on your handlebars that holds on with a rubber band. It's just basically a piece of paper, and then you just write the nodes down sure. on there. And then you just then you don't need the map and the cue sheets, and you just you go to 75, and then it says this way to 74, and there's signs along the way to lead you to 74. And then when I get to node 74, then you say, okay, now I'll, there's a map, and I head this way to get to 73, and so. You want a short ride, a long ride. You want to ride along a river. You want to ride through a forest. You want a ride that goes into a town where you can get a lunch. You can design your own ride like that. And, oh, you just see on, on a nice uh, Saturday or Sunday, you see hundreds of people out riding their bikes in the countryside. Yeah, and this is part of the public transportation infrastructure. Like the node system is something that that they said, hey, let's just put this there. Yeah, and it's also interesting how good ideas spread. Mm-hmm. This idea was invented for bicycling in uh, in Belgium, mm-hmm. and then it went to a uh, nearby Germany, uh, near Aachen, Germany, and then one area of Holland near near Germany said, "We'll try doing that," and within like five years, it had just swept the whole country. Yeah, well, just done. You know, and there were people who said, that's not the way we do things. No, we have our own signage system. And like, wait a second, this is good. This works. People love it. And boom, it just swept the whole country. And if something works, it tends to be infectious. Yeah. So, and, and it's beautiful to see uh, over there. Uh, on the one hand, in Holland, things, there's this, their, their culture is kind of orderly. And, you know, this is the way we do things. But at the same time, they're open to innovations. You got a better idea, it takes over. Yeah, uh, and it's it's very frustrating when you're working in the traffic engineering community here in America. Uh, it can take ages to get permission from the authorities to, to 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 use some signs or something like that that are so sensible that work so well. So that's another uh, thing that makes me happy about my summers in Holland. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I wish you, it's going to be at least six months until your next trip, right? So yeah. I, I wish you the best winter you can have. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. I, win, winter's not bad because I ride my bike all winter long. So yeah. I still get plenty of vitamin D. I still get outdoors. still get good exercise. So uh, no depression or cabin fever for me. Right. Yeah. I um, I haven't had a bike in Boston for couple of years i think i i bought one 
and then it got old and uh, I've never here long enough to, to fix it up oh. and so I'm borrowing my friend's Brompton today and it was it was lovely just like the the difference between that and uh, and waiting in line for for the, the train or something so, oh yeah and I'm all about the train it's, it's a good option as well but uh, it's nice to be outside yep that's what we're made to do Okay, that's it for this edition. Special coverage in Boston from the Sprocket Podcast. You will return to the studio with Aaron and Guthrie very soon. They've got an episode they just taped, and it's coming out real soon. So hope you enjoy that as well. But uh, Happy New Year. It is good to have you with us. Please keep on listening. Please write to us. It's the Sprocket Podcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. And uh, we're I, I guess we're on Instagram, too. So anyways, uh, look forward to talking to you and uh, send us your stories. Tell us about a trip you took in which you found that you were much happier than you were at home. Also, if you're at home and you're happy, just send us that story. It's, it's good to hear stories from all sides. And it's a new year. Tell us what you're resolving to do. I know I am cutting my calorie intake like crazy because I gained more weight over the winter like many of us do. So uh, send us your resolution. Send us everything that you'd like us to know about. And uh, we may share that with the greater collective. But happy new year. And we'll be back to the Sprocket's regular schedule in just a little bit. Take care. Have a good one.